You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, well, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran's Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Today is my special guest. Boy, I have a good one today. Ron Webb served in the U.S. Air Force as an air policeman from 1962 through 1966 with a tour in Vietnam from 1965 to 66. He has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Georgia State University and a master's degree in public administration administration from Central Michigan University. Ron served four years with the Georgia State Patrol and six years as a special agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. In 1978, he was appointed as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and served 22 years attaining executive rank as an assistant special agent in charge. Ron retired from the FBI in the year 2000, moved to Santee, Natchitoches, in 2006 in Georgia. He is a member and trustee of the Natchitoches United Methodist Church, where he is the current president of the men's group. He has served as past president of North Georgia Veterans, headquartered at Big Canoe, Georgia, and he is the founder and current president of the North George, Northeast Georgia Veterans Society, headquartered in Cleveland, Georgia. Ron is also vice chairman of the Atlanta chapter of the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI and chairman of the White County Republican Party. Uh, Ron, welcome to the show, young man. Oh, thank you, Pat. It's an honor to talk with you, Pete. Well, thank you, Ron. I'll tell you what, the first thing I want to do is thank you for inviting me to speak to your group on Veterans Day. You have a great group of people up there, a great group of veterans, and uh, I had a good time. I think your people did, too. So thank you very much for that invitation, Ron. Oh, I got uh, a lot of accolades on your presentation and uh, the event uh, uh, overall. The, you know, uh, we dedicated uh, that uh, monument uh, to veterans in Helen Veterans Park that day. So it was a big day for veterans and uh that uh, capped off with the dinner that night and and your presentation. Uh, like I say, I got uh, all kind of accolades from the uh, officials in Helen, Georgia, and uh, in the newspaper up here. Well, I appreciate that. We had a good turnout, too, so it was a great thing. Ron, let's get to you. Uh, where were you born and raised, and tell us about your childhood. I was born in Swingsboro, Georgia, Pete, uh, I was raised in Reedsville, Georgia. It's uh, about 50 miles west of uh, Savannah, and it was a state prison farm. At that time, in the 50s and 60s, it was the maximum security, the only maximum security uh, prison in the state. And my father was a state trooper, and they had a uh, state patrol station there at the prison farm. And... uh, you know, looking back on it, it was idyllic for a uh, a, a boy to be raised there. Uh, it, they had to make work for the prisoners, so they uh, dug ponds all over the place. It's a swampy area, so you could go down about four or five feet and hit the water table. So there was 
fishing opportunities, hunting opportunities all over the place. And uh, I became friends with uh, the the guy that kept the barn. At that time, the guard rode horses, and I loved horses. And I became friends with a uh, guy named Hall. I never knew his whole name. Uh, Hall was a, an old black gentleman, and uh, he... Uh, he taught me how to uh, ride a horse. If I rode bareback, they'd lock up the saddles and the bridles, but Paul taught me how to uh, make a rope harness, uh, a bridle, and uh, I rode uh, the horses on the weekends uh, all over that uh, prison farm. So, uh, And uh, he Paul was a kind of an entrepreneur, too. Uh, uh, he he made rabbit boxes for me, and uh, the prisoners only got... Uh, uh, meet you know, a couple times a week, but uh, the other uh, Wednesdays and Sunday, and uh, the rest of the time they ate fat back. So I'd catch mm. uh, rabbits and for him, and he'd go into the prison and sell them. And uh, we we uh, bore peanuts and sold them to the guards and to the visitors there. So all kept me in spending money all through uh, my. Uh, uh, elementary on up through uh, high school days. So I loved Old Hall. Old Hall was a great guy. It was a. It was well, a you, great you sound like man. You were born and raised for law enforcement, weren't you? Oh yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, I was born into it. Yeah, but that was okay. A, let me. That was idyllic. <laughs> let me ask you this: Why did you choose the Air Force? Well, my mother died when I was 15, and I had an uncle who was an officer in the Air Force. He came to the funeral in a uniform, and he looked resplendent in that uniform. And he he asked me what I was going to do after I graduated from high school. I said, well, I would try to get on the state patrol. That was my goal. He said, well... You need to go into the service. If you're not going to go to college, you need to go to service, get that GI Bill, and go to college. And, you know, he kind of set a goal for me uh, at that time. So he uh, he was a strong influence. And uh, he had just joined the Air Force when it was still the uh, Army Air Corps. And uh, yeah. he, I right out of high school, uh, but he went to ROTC became a pilot. He flew B-52s and uh, KC-135s. And then uh, in the Vietnam War, he, he could have retired in uh, 67 or 68 and went to with any airline with his uh, experience. But uh, he chose to go to, to Vietnam and fly Puff the Magic Dragon. So Really? He was my he was my hero. He could have uh, he could have stayed home, not jeopardized his life, stayed with his family, and made uh, you know twice as much as, or, or more uh, as an airline pilot. But he uh, he he did his duty and served his country and jeopardized uh, put his life on the line for our country. And uh, he was my he was a hero to me. I guess so. You uh, you mentioned Puff the Magic Dragon. I certainly know what that is, but some of the folks listening may not know about Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, tell them what Puff the Magic Dragon was. Well, it started out as the old 
C-124 cargo planes, and they put uh, three Gatlin guns in it. And they had it rigged up so uh, they could uh, uh, fire the the, the Gatlin guns, fire 6,000 rounds a minute, so when you got three of them going, uh, it, it can put out some lead. And the the ground troop is the one that named it Tough the Magic Dragon because when they would fly over it, it, it they used it primarily as ground support. And when that thing let all three of those Gatling guns go, uh, it, it, a, a the the smoke uh, or uh, out of the guns engulfed the uh, aircraft. So. Uh, uh, the, the the ground troops are the ones that uh, uh, named it Puff the Magic Dragon. Yeah, very appropriate. We still have them now, but they're in the C 130s, and it is an awesome, awesome weapon. All right, when you uh, when did you join the Air Force, Ron? What year? 62. 62. All right, well, you got the basic training. Uh, tell us a little bit about your basic training and why you chose the Air Police, or why did they choose the Air Police for you? I think they chose the Air Police for me, but that's what I wanted. So uh, you know, that's what I told the recruiter. And uh, this is one of the times that the recruit, recruiters, uh, you know, told you told the truth that uh, you know they, <laughs> I could uh, go into the Air Police, and uh, you know the the basic training was uh, a standard. I'm sure you're familiar with it, just marching and. Uh, uh, yeah, learning uh, to march and and uh, be disciplined. Uh, it's when I got into the Air Police School there. Air Police School was there at Lackland also, and uh, uh, you learned uh, traffic direction and uh, takedown techniques. You know for. Uh, Town patrol, uh, uh, hand-to-hand uh, takedown techniques, and uh, you know, how to handle uh, traffic situations. Uh, and you, the UCMJ, a lot of uh, uh, law, UCMJ uh, uh, lessons. Uh, yeah, that's the Uniform uh, Code of Military Justice, right? Correct. Yeah, did did you did you consider your training as an air policeman in the Air Force sufficient, good, mediocre? What do you think about it? Yeah, with all my law enforcement experience uh, with the State Patrol and the GBI and the FBI, I consider it uh, good. You know, they uh, you know they were they were heavy on the law. You know, you had to uh, be uh, grounded in what you were doing in the in the, use, the UCMJ Uniform Code of Military Justice, so and weapons. Uh, you had to be proficient in uh, your weapons. Uh, we had the forty five then and the M two, so we got a lot of uh, weapons training. Did you say the M2, the M1 carbine? Uh, I mean, M2, M2 the old carbine. Yeah. We, we, wasn't, wow, wasn't M, couldn't M2 go fully automatic? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it had the, had the selectors. 
switch on it. That was a nice little weapon. I loved the M1 carbine, but I've always coveted the M2 carbine. Wish I had one. The, uh, where was your? Uh, we're going to a break here pretty soon, folks. But what was your first posting, Ron? It was Laverno, Italy. We were really. What do you call it? Leghorn. Uh, <laughs> you know that that was right during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, that's and right. We you know, this is one time it gives you an early example of media bias. You know, Kennedy got uh, accolades for making the Russians uh, move the missiles out of Cuba. But the deal was that we would close down our missile sites in Italy, Greece, and Turkey. So we were sent to Italy. They, they were the old Jupiter C missiles at the time, and they were closing down all the sites, and we had to escort the, uh, the nuclear bombs from the, the Italian bases to the ships and are on to the aircraft and uh, we had to regard the, the bases while they took the, the missiles down and took the uh, warheads off of them so uh, well uh, escorting we nuclear went, missiles that's <laughs> that doesn't sound like a real great job to me but uh, all right ron very good man uh we will be right back folks we're going to a first break stick with us Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Thank you so much. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Ron Webb, a former uh, air policeman, served in Vietnam, served with the Georgia State Patrol, special agent for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and 22 years as special agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Ron, when you were uh, in the air police... Uh, you finally got over where well, you went to Italy, but tell us about going to Thailand and to Vietnam. Well, let me back up to, uh, you know, I, I went to Greece and Turkey. Like I say, they were, they, oh. were, they, they were closing down those Jupiter-C uh, missile sites, and uh, 
we just we yeah, I got to see Europe uh, in, in the '62, '63, and I uh, finally was stationed up at Eskishir, Turkey, and that's where uh, Francis Gary Powers, uh, the U2, uh, shot down by the. Uh, by the Russian, the U-2 pilot that was shot down. That's where he took off from when, right before he was shot down by the Russian huh. at Eskishir, Turkey. Uh, you know, the deal was that we would close down those Jupiter Sea uh, missile sites and, and the Russians would take the missiles out of Cuba. But then we backfilled those missile sites with F-100s uh, and carrying nuclear uh, weapons uh, in Eskishir. We were only 15 minutes from our target uh, in Turkey at, at that time. So, you know, we kind of snookered the Russians on that deal. <laughs> World politics. All right, oh, well, yeah. you, got your, you eventually got your orders for Thailand and Vietnam. Well, I, about came back, I, came back, I came back to McConnell. Air Force oh. Base in Wichita, Kansas, and we were on uh, the old Titan II missile sites that were uh, in a ring around Wichita, Kansas. So I was there for a couple of years, uh, and we're doing uh, again. It was it was great duty. We were doing uh, patrols between the missile sites and uh, put a lot of miles on. Uh, old uh, pickup trucks back then that just, you know, they had security guards, uh, APs were security on the missile sites, and we were kind of a SWAT team or a uh, reinforcement, and a four man team road that had a certain sector with three or four missile sites. So if anything happened on the missile sites, we responded to it. So it was. Uh, it was pretty good duty, and then I got orders to uh, uh, Da Nang, uh, and you know they they were taking us to Fort Ord, just south of San Francisco, for a quote combat refresher course for APs. Uh, da Nang was getting. Uh, a little action uh, during that time, mortars and all that. So, and we were transitioning from the M2 to the M16. I mean, uh, from the M2 carbine to the M16. So, most of the training there at Fort was uh, uh, on the M16. And a couple of days before we were supposed to graduate. They came in and says, the orders have been changed. There were about 20, 25 guys in the class going over. And like I say, all of us were supposed to go to the name originally. But they said, "Your uh, the orders have been changed. Uh, you're going to Bangkok. <laughs> and we'd all, we, knew, we knew at that time what a great R&R uh, area uh, Bangkok was. You know, it was a real kick in the shins. But what had yeah. happened was... This was the last of November of 65, and the, they had just, the battle, the Adrain Valley battle had occurred in the 
middle yeah. of uh, November uh, of that year. And they were sending in those guys towards the last of uh, November and 1st of December. They were sending those Air Cavalry guys in, you know, a platoon or squads at a time for R&R. And we had a bunch of Marines down from I-Corps. They'd had a big battle up there, and they were sending those guys down for a little R&R. And you know the Marines, Pete. Uh, nobody out publicizes the Marines. And I've always <laughs> said, I was at Quantico with the FBI, and the, the standard uh, uh, kick on the Marines there, a Marine Corps officer, when he graduates from Quantico, they issue him a rifle, a saber, and a press agent. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you, and you're talking about these guys, that the air, uh, air calf, and Marines and everything, they're going R&R where you were at Bangkok, Thailand, right? Correct. And, uh, all right, all right. Continue and on. You know, the air, the, air, the air cab got all kind of uh, pub, publicity, positive publicity about it at Drain Valley because they deserved it. You know, they were out numbers like three to one, and they really uh, kicked butts and took names at that in that battle. I think that, that battle convinced Yap, uh, the uh, general, uh, the North Vietnamese general, uh, that he could not go toe-to-toe with uh, the Americans in a division-sized battle. Uh, I think that that convinced him, convinced him and, and they went to guerrilla warfare from there on out and yeah. outlasted us. But uh, I think that convinced Yap that there's no way he could win a battle uh, a, a division sized battle with the United States Army. And uh, they, uh, you know, the, the Thai government at that time was uh, putting out their propaganda that the Americans were great people. They were here to save them from the communists. And, uh, you know, the Thai police would not. Uh, Arrest. You had to do something really serious for the Thai police to arrest uh, any American. And uh, needless to say, uh, with that kind of latitude, those Marines and First Air Cal guys, they were uh, they were tearing up the town. So, uh, <laughs> it, you know, the first couple of weeks uh, I was there, I got my butt kicked every night. Uh, uh, it, it was... I sh- we we should have got combat pay then. But, uh, <laughs> we we finally got a handle on it though. After about uh, half a dozen broken batons, we got a handle on it. <laughs> How do you get a handle on Marines and air cab going at it? I mean, that was some kind of a brutal bar fight, isn't it? Oh, it is. You know, we if the if the Marines and the Air Cav were in a bar and they started to fight, we just closed off the doors and go in and bayonet the wounded. Uh, and <laughs> we put them in, we put them in a six by, and take them back out on the base. And, and uh, the next day they were back in Saigon, uh, and, that, and that's what I, I, we finally told uh, our Air Police Major there. I said, "Look, when they when they come in, take them." Do a briefing on them and tell them that if they uh, assault a air policeman or 
they they're going to the brig and get an Article 15, and they'll be back in Saigon. There were some guys that came in 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 the morning, and they were going back to Saigon in the afternoon. So that's that's how we got a handle on that. Yeah. <laughs> Bless your hearts, man. All right, now uh, how you went to several places in Thailand, and you also went to yeah. Vietnam. What what bases did you cover in Thailand? I was at uh, NK at Nakhon Phanom and uh, Udorn. All right. Uh, you know, I, you know, when I was in Bangkok, they won the us when we came in there, like I say, it was about 25 of us guys, and they didn't have room on the base. So uh, they they gave us 50 bucks a month uh, quarters allowance and told us to go find a place. Uh, well, for 50 bucks a month, you could get a penthouse in, in yeah. downtown Bangkok. And another uh, staff sergeant and I, we had a two-room suite in one of the swankiest hotels in Bangkok and uh, <laughs> you know and at that time Bangkok was the jet set uh, uh, resort you know before Cancun and places like that and uh, all the European models and flight attendants and all they they came down those beaches uh, south of Bangkok are, are beautiful beaches and uh, it was the, uh, as I said, the jet set crowd came in. I know I've, I was sitting out on those beaches uh, having a cold one and watching those models and all go by in their uh, bikinis. And, uh, you know, I told I turned over one of my NCO buddies and said, uh, you know, war is hell, man. <laughs> <laughs> But I got, but I we we uh, got back to reality because they transferred us to uh, NKP. They got they got Phnom, and the CBs had just the C at that time the CBs had just bulldozed that base out of the jungle. So I went from a penthouse in downtown Bangkok to a tent in the in the jungle with a with a PSP runway, a pure steel planking runway and tents. Uh, so it was quite a contrast uh, there. We were in Bangkok about four months and uh, in NKP and then went up to Udorn. Uh, Udorn was the combat recovery uh, or, or combat damage recovery base uh, in Thailand at the time. Saw a lot of F-4s and F-105s come in with all kind of battles. I know one came in one time. It had a hundred and one holes in it. He had bombed. He, he, his mission was up north, uh, the railroad lines coming out of China. And, of course, uh, the North Vietnamese uh, had those uh, bridges uh, uh, just covered with black uh, guns and yeah this pilot had uh, made a run on a railroad bridge and had got 
a hit, and I know there was there was a couple of holes in it that were big as footballs. I don't see how in the world he got, he brought that uh, old, old thud back and call them thuds. Yeah, uh, uh, so the one, yeah that, that was that uh, one hundred five F one hundred five. Uh, Thunder Chief, they called it Thud. It was right. the workhorse of the Vietnam War, and it took some brutal, brutal punishment over there. But uh, it was it was strong, it was durable, and it could get guys back. Um, it was it was, it was a it was a durable. It could it could take hits. Well, I, I, I've seen a lot of them come in to you, Dorns. It was uh, uh, all kind of uh, holes in them. It, it was a good yeah, aircraft. Yeah, if you got through your tour in, as F-105 pilot, you were a very lucky individual without being hit or killed or, or, or captured. But Okay, we are, uh, Ron, we're going to our second break. Folks, stay with us. We'll be right back. A very, very interesting interview. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Ron Webb. Ron, uh, as air policeman, he served in Thailand. Uh, you had to break up a lot of fights between Marines and the, and the Army dudes. But you did go on temporary duty assignments to Vietnam. Uh, where did you go in Vietnam, and why were you sent there? Uh, it was early on. Uh, while I was at NKP, they 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 get intelligence that... Uh, the North Vietnamese were going to come across the DMZ and take Da Nang. So they'd, they'd send, uh, to bolster the air police contingent, they'd, they'd send us in. Uh, I think the most I, I spent there was a couple of weeks. And uh, just as uh, to, to bolster up the uh, air police contingent uh, and then back to NKP. We got mortared a couple of times, but, uh, you know, the, yep. when they started the mortars, the Marine Corps, Marine Corps had uh, uh, security of the outer perimeter, the outer perimeter of the base, so you know, the Marines would uh, run in there and... and Keep the mortars off of us. Yeah. Well, that, that was Rocket City up there in I-Corps and around the Nang, I can tell you that. Uh, 
Let me ask you this. You know, I was in Thailand, too. Vietnam was entirely different because the war was going on. And, and you know, sometimes you're scrambling for your life. But over in Thailand, uh, we weren't in that much danger at all. There was some insurgency. But what, what did you think of the Thai people? Did you like the, the Thai people in the country? Oh, definitely. Uh, they were uh, the friendliest, uh, uh, most... Uh, hospitable uh, people uh, you know, we you know, we pumped up with all kind of propaganda about uh, the Vietnamese uh, as being you know Viet Cong and all that you couldn't trust the uh, civilians uh, you didn't know who were Viet Cong and all that and we got all kind of briefings on this before we went up uh, over but uh, the uh, Thai people, as I said, the Thai government uh, was putting all the propaganda out about the, how the Americans were there to uh, save them from the communist hordes. So, you know, that was kind of reinforced. But I think naturally the Thai people are, are just very hospitable people. Uh, uh, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't say anything bad about uh, the, the Thai people. Yeah, yeah, the, the uh, uh, Thai, uh, Puyang Sui Mok, uh, uh, Thailand, right? Kunsabad Ru. I learned to speak Thai very well, but when I got to Vietnam, I really I learned a couple things uh, in, in Vietnamese, but my favorite line in Vietnamese was, was Tola Ban Dung Nam, which meant I am a friend, don't shoot. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally well, different. I will. Different. Well, that, okay, that was uh, certainly <laughs> Ron, after uh, after time in Vietnam, did you come home and get out, or did you have any other postings? Yeah, I had to, I had to extend four months of my uh, enlistment to go to uh, Thailand I, or, or uh, to Vietnam. Uh, I, you know, I I wanted to. I wanted to do all I could to uh, fight for my country, and that was where the war was. So I extended my enlistment four months uh, and volunteered to go over. It, at, the, at that time, in 65 and 66, you had to volunteer to go to uh, Vietnam in the Air Force. Yeah. They, they took only volunteers. So uh, like I say, I extended my uh, enlistment four months and... When I came back, uh, got to Travis Air Force Base in California and uh, mustered out there. And, you know, it, w- it was starting in California then, the opposition to the war, anyway, because they told me not to wear my uniform off the base uh, yeah. if I went into Frisco, uh, even, even then. I know it certainly got worse later on. 68, 69, 70, but uh, even then they had demonstrations uh, outside the base about the, the war. So that was my welcome home. I know. I remember that quite well. I, that's where well, I stayed two and a half years in Southeast Asia and Vietnam. I felt like it was my duty, and, I, and that's where I wanted to be. But I had the same kind of welcome when I got home. We all did, but thank God the the ones of us who have gotten back and stayed alive long enough, uh, we've seen that transition from being called baby killers to heroes. 
And I keep telling people we're neither. We're just another generation did their job uh, under impossible rules of engagement. Uh, Ron, after your service, you earn two degrees. Uh, it should be obvious as to why you chose a criminal justice. But was it your experiences with the air police that also influenced your decision to, to stay in criminal justice? Oh, definitely. You know, uh, I got top in my veins, so uh, there was never any uh, uh, doubt. You know, I, I, I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be a, well, uh, as a GBI agent was uh, my my goal uh, because uh, that was the top of the pyramid in Georgia at the time. Yeah, and I had been raised uh, sort of in a state patrol station. My my father being state trooper, and uh, uh, but but my father told me, he "says son, if you're going to uh, if you're going to be." in law enforcement you go for the FBI and uh, I knew I had to get a degree if I was ever going to try to be an FBI agent so uh, that was motivation to uh, go ahead and and get my degree uh, and I worked uh, I, I was stationed in Savannah first as a, I stationed in Savannah as a radio operator and I went to school there, got my associate degree, and then I, I transferred up to uh, Atlanta uh, as a trooper and at the governor's mansion. Uh, really? Was <laughs> I was security for uh, about six months with Lester Maddox was governor. <laughs> that was a... That was a... Crete... And I, I was on the desk the night he, Lester Maddox, went out to California. Was on the Dick Cabot show, and you know he walked off that show because they were uh, talking to him about his segregation stands and all that, and, and, and really uh, purloining him. So he walked off the show. And I had to answer all those phone calls because they <laughs> they, they transferred the. The telephone operation down to the gate. Uh, I was I was a gate guard, and uh, like I say that that was an experience to say the least. Uh, having to now that was when you were with all the, the uh, in, yeah you were the Georgia State Patrol at that time. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now you served six years as a special agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. That's the GBI. Tell us about those Correct. years, Ron. Well, as far as uh, real police work, that was uh, real police work. I mean, you worked uh, murders, robberies, uh, burglaries, uh, you know, assaults. Uh, I was stationed in Gainesville, Georgia, which is about uh, 60 miles northeast of Atlanta and uh, uh, it was uh, the time uh, when uh, drugs were becoming it was in the early 70s 72 is when I got out of uh, I got my degree 
and I, I transferred from the patrol over to the GBI, and I was, I say, was stationed in Gainesville, and it was uh, the, the methamphetamine industry started in Northeast Georgia uh, because there was a, it was a poultry capital of uh, the United States at the time. Uh, because all this area, this mountainous area, it's not that much agriculture, so uh, the, the farmers grew chickens. And it, as I said, at the time, uh, it was uh, the poultry capital of the United States, poultry po- processing. And all these guys would, uh, they worked in the processing plants. Uh, they worked in processing plants during the daytime. And at night, you, you, they caught the chickens at night uh, when they were on their roost. Uh, that's, uh, they could catch them easier then. And uh, they had to have something to keep them awake. And some enterprising uh, bootlegger, uh, moonshine guy, had made a contact in Mexico. And they started bringing methamphetamines up here for the... Uh, Chicken catchers, what we call them, and those guys would would stay awake uh, three or four days a week. And uh, if you ever got uh, a bunch of them, I know many a times I was uh, out uh, working the case, and I'd, we were on the state patrol network. The GBI was they the trooper would come on and says, "Look, I just pulled over a bunch." of Chicken catchers, uh, hopped up chicken catchers. I need help, so you you'd have to go help it because you know they were so hopped up on dope. Uh, they they were irrational, to say the least. Holy cow! But, the, but the, you know, I became a homicide specialist. And I, I worked uh, murders uh, for this northeast Georgia area, uh, and that that was a busy time. We had one of the most prolific, uh, I think he is the uh, record serial killer uh, for Georgia. I think the GBI finally credited credited him with something like 50 murders. A guy named Billy Sunday Burt uh, uh, was running rampant in this area. He had been involved with a moonshine uh, operation and a dope operation. And uh, the ATF had taken down the operation and taken most of the guys with it, but nobody would testify against Billy because he was a psychopath. And Billy started going around. He knew all these people that uh, were the moonshine retailers, and uh, he knew they had money uh, because they couldn't put it in the banks. And uh, he was going around just killing people that... uh, uh, he knew had money stashed away in their homes, and he, it. I know I worked uh, four of his murders, and uh, there were at least uh, uh, eight or ten more in Georgia that he did. We finally finally got him, got a death penalty on him, and uh, another agent, Bob Ingram, uh, did uh, did some great work. Uh, and uh, he started fessing up to a bunch of other murders because some people that we had got that were associated with him 
started uh, coming in on him, uh, and they started confessing to each other. And <laughs> funny story, wow. I, was, I was interviewing Billy one day, and uh, I had a list of about, uh, oh, 16, 18 murders that uh, he was involved in. Like At that time, he'd already been convicted and got the death penalty, and I wanted to make sure he wasn't trying to pin uh, some murders that uh, he had not done on some of his guys that were testifying against him. And I put up some ringers in there, and I'd go down the left. He, Billy had a speech impediment. Uh, he, he talked uh, kind of tongue-tied. And I, every time I'd, I'd mention a, a murder that he did, he wouldn't say anything. But if I mentioned one he didn't, he'd say, he'd say, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that one. I didn't do that one. And Good yeah. God. What was this guy's name? Uh, Ron, what was this guy's name again? Billy Sunday Burt, B-I-R-T. There's a... Uh, and responsible there, there, for about there, 50, there. 50 murders. Yeah, wow. I think the GBI, the GBI all the way down in Florida, the GBI has got him credited with that many. I had him credited with... I think twenty eight uh, wow. up in this area. Uh, what, anyway. what a great story! Okay, I'm sorry, we got to go to our last break, folks. Stay with us. I never knew about this mass murder in Georgia. We'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on, 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 on the, the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with a, a special agent, Ron Webb. Ron, you just told us about a psychopathic murderer in Georgia killed about 50 people. Never knew about it. But then after you spent all this time with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, you spent the next 22 years as a special agent with the FBI. Knock yourself out, no. Ron. Tell us about those 22 years. Uh, hey. <laughs> I was appointed FBI agent in 78, and uh, first office was St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, they had a uh, kind of a, I was, I was put on an organized crime squad, and uh, at the time, the the mafia boss there had died, and they, it, they started a little internecine war among the uh, uh, mafia family there about who was going to take over and uh, there were several bombings and 
I was was able to get in on that. We started doing a lot of wiretaps and bugs and putting bugs in cars and uh, we wound up uh, and and that led to the the mob had a control kind of uh, in politics there they had their hands in some political people that uh, were in uh, St. Louis government uh, and we were able to get uh, a a bug in an attorney's office uh, in St. Louis, and he was the uh, main cog in the wheel as far as the politics, and the, the mob had him as a front guy for the old Aladdin Hotel in Vegas, Las Vegas, and we, uh, we were able to get... Uh, information about the secret ownership of the Aladdin Hotel and uh, they had all kind of voter fraud uh, activities going. We arrested several city officials for voter fraud. Uh, Even back then it was the absentee ballots that uh, they were uh, (laughs) manipulating. And it, it doesn't change. All those absentee ballots are the uh, centerpiece of any voter fraud scheme. So, oh man, uh, does this does this ring a bell? Or the or the yeah, we took them, uh, took the whole uh, gang down. Uh, one guy got uh, uh, death penalty for killing uh, a guy that he thought was going to be an informant for us, and uh, we got that on tape and. Uh, uh, it, it was exciting times. So, I mean, we we did uh, we struck a good blow for good government in St. Louis because we got a bunch of those uh, mafia-dominated uh, uh, officials out of there. And uh, I spent uh, four years in St. Louis, and then got transferred to New York, and uh, again working. Uh, uh, the mob in New York uh, working labor racketeering cases. Uh, uh, the mob, the five mob families in New York controlled the construction industry, primarily through the unions and the control of the unions. They controlled the uh, Teamsters Union, the Laborers Union. Uh, they were very influential, influential in the uh, uh, hotel workers uh, union. So uh, that was the, that was the biggest asset that the mob had was control of the unions. Uh, you know, they if a if an individual uh, contractor, if a construction contractor got a contract in New York City, he had to pay the mob guys. All the mob guys had their they're made mob guys as uh, business agents in the unions and uh, uh, if the if the contractors didn't give them the kickbacks and they didn't get the concrete you know some if a some guy from out of town out of New York City uh, got a contract and wasn't familiar with the uh, uh, way 
things were done in New York. You know, he's he's waiting on his contract. The mob guys would tell the uh, concrete drivers to uh, take a break, and they provide them with uh, girlfriends or prostitutes. And you know, the the contractor would be sitting there with about twenty five or thirty guys sitting on their shovels and couldn't get his concrete. So eventually, he had to pay off. And the, and the contractors in New York, they knew the game, and they, they benefited from the game. You know, they paid the mob guys off, and the mob guys let them use non-union labor, and uh, they even had schemes where they, uh, the mob guys would kind of dictate who got the contracts. Uh, you know, they'd sit around, and uh, the mob guys would say, oh, this contractor here gets this and they, it was really big bid rigging. Uh, they'd sit around, and uh, when, a, when a contract was lit, they'd, they'd uh, decide who's, what construction company is going to get it. So all the other construction companies would underbid this guy. And this, uh, the guy that was uh, the mob said was going to get the contract, because he elevated his price. And... It was, it was nothing but big rigging. It was all kind of schemes going on at the time. And thank God for Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani was a U.S. attorney back then. And I think it was Rudy Giuliani's uh, mission in life to redeem the Italian name from being associated with gangsters. And uh, we wound up taking all the... Uh, all five of the mob families, heads of the mob families down, uh, during that time. It was, it was the heyday of, uh, the FBI's war against, uh, the mafia, the mob. Good God of money. It's, people just don't realize this stuff goes on, I guess. But now today, Ron, you know, I, God bless you for what you've done, but now the FBI is its reputation is so tainted right now. Uh, you have been in the FBI for 22 years. You've seen the changes. Uh, let it loose, Ron. What what do you think's going on now, and why is the FBI so its reputation is so stained now? Uh, one name, Comey. Really? Comey is the worst, uh, Jim Comey is the worst thing that ever happened to the FBI. You know, the FBI's motto is fidelity, bravery, and integrity. Well, Jim Comey uh, devastated that I, integrity part. When I was in, we had integrity because... We live by that motto, but Jim Comey's handling of, the, 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 especially the Hillary Clinton investigation uh, and, and her uh, handling of classified information, you know, Pete, if you and I had done what she did, we'd still be in Leavenworth. Yes, uh, sir. Uh, you know, military people or... Uh, you know, government employees who handle classified information, like you say, uh, and, and she should have been in Leavenworth. 
with with all that she did. And if that investigation on Hillary Clinton was a travesty of justice, you know, they uh, those people around her that had all that information on the phones instead of getting search warrants and going and taking them from those people, they subpoenaed them and the people smashed them and bleach bit uh, the hard drives and nothing was done. And, and I got to say, you know, it was because of the Justice Department uh, under Obama was, uh, they weren't going to prosecute her. Uh, they they just knew that she'd be the next president, and there's no way they were going to prosecute her. So, you know, the FBI has any kind of court action that an FBI agent involved in, he has to go to the Justice Department to get it up. Subpoenas, search warrant, arrest warrant, all things like that. You have to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office and and get that. And you've got to explain uh, and write affidavits as to why you want to have a subpoena or a search warrant or an arrest warrant. And if if they decide you haven't got enough to if the U.S. Attorney's Office decides you haven't got enough to do a search warrant or do an arrest warrant, uh, then you've got to go back out and, and, and get more uh, evidence or more probable cause. But the way that investigation was handled was, again, just a travesty. And, uh, you know, the, the bias... Ron, let me ask you, we, we are running out of time, and this is so interesting, hearing the voice of experience from an FBI agent. Let me ask you this before we have to shut it down. Do you think the FBI can reverse this curse they have on them now and become the supreme law enforcement agency they used to be? Oh, definitely can, because we get good people. I mean, the... There, I I saw it all in my career. You know, guys, uh, accountants and lawyers that were making two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, they uh, came into the FBI, you know, making sixty, seventy thousand a year. So you get good people because they want to uh, do the right thing, protect the country, uh, and and uh, you know when I came in. Uh, practically all the uh, FBI agents that I went to Quantico with were Vietnam vets, uh, officers, military officers, and police officers. Uh, I know now it's different because, because you got to have computer scientists and things like that, but the FBI is able to get good people. I think the FBI has the lowest, when I was in, had the lowest turnover rate. Uh, uh, it, it went back and forth between the FBI and NASA every year by having the lowest turnover rate and uh, okay. the uh, quality of people. Yes, they can get it back. All right, Ron, let oh, me I'll tell you what. I'd like to have you back one day just to talk about the FBI and what's going on in the country. You have the experience and you have the truth behind you. Thank you so much for this interview, Ron. Uh, we'll be uh, with you soon. And, folks, uh, uh, join us next week for another great interview. Thank you so much, Mr. Uh, Ron Webb. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.